Section 3 of Epics and Romances of the Middle Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Epics and Romances of the Middle Ages by Wilhelm Wagner. Section 3. Part 1. Section 1. Chapter 3. Ordnate. A great king once lived in Lombardy. He was richer and more powerful than any other monarch far or near. His name was Ortnit, and his dominions extended over the whole of Italy, from the Alps to the sea, and even included Sicily. The neighboring kings were all his vassals, for possessing the strength of twelve ordinary men, he was of course victorious in every battle. And yet he was not contented. An inward unrest prevented him from enjoying his wealth and greatness. He often sat dreamily at table, tasting nothing, and deaf to all that was being said around him, deaf even to the minstrels when they sang songs in his praise. He frequently wandered alone up in the mountains, seeking adventures, slaying robbers and destroying the wild beasts that preyed upon the farmers' flocks and herds. But this did not satisfy him. He sighed for something more. One day, when he was standing, as he often did, on the seashore, watching the waves that rose and fell, tinted by the light of the setting sun, a mist came up out of the water. A few minutes more, and it parted slowly like a veil, showing a wondrous sight. It was that of a castle with towers and barbican, and on the battlement stood a woman, such as he had never seen before in all his travels. He could not take his eyes off her. The effect of her beauty on him was like enchantment. Then the mist gradually closed again, and lady and castle vanished as completely as if they had never been. While Ortnit was still staring at the place where he had seen the lady, he heard a step behind him. Ah, it is she, he thought, and turning quickly clasped and kissed bearded Elias, prince of the wild Rusen, who was his uncle. The newcomer returned the embrace heartily, and then said, you are a good lad to receive your mother's brother with as much transport as a lover his sweetheart. But you have been gazing at a bit of sorcery down there, and that accounts for a great deal. Try to forget what you have seen, or your royal head may soon be displayed from the towers of Montabior, where the lovely witch lives with that old heathen, her father. She's a real person, then, cried Ortnit quickly. She must be mine. I would stake my life to win her. What is that you say, answered Elias, a king's head for a woman's curl? That would make a new song for the minstrels to sing in Lombardy. How am I to find her? asked the king. Tell me the story, which I suppose some wandering fiddler has sung. Why, nephew, replied the elder man, I have seen with my own eyes and have heard with my own ears what I am now going to tell you. It is no minstrel's tale I am going to amuse you with. Mahorel is the name of the maiden's father, and he is the ruler of Syria, Jerusalem, and other eastern lands. When I was returning from my pilgrimage to the Holy Sepulchre, I arrived one evening at the gates of Castle Montabur, weary and footsore, and the Saracen porter had compassion on me, took me in, and showed me no little kindness. Then it was that I saw the wicked heathen king, whose skin is as black as that of a moor, and also the beautiful princess Sidarat. I heard it said that he intended to marry his own daughter when her sick mother was dead, and that was why he cut off the heads of all the wooers who came to ask for the prince's hand in marriage. Seventy-two skulls already green from the towers of Castle Montabur. Say, bold youth, 
Do you intend to offer your head to the Moorish king as the 73rd? I have been through many a strange adventure before now, returned Ortenit, and I shall try to get the better of the infidel. On the following day, the notables of the realm were summoned to a council. The king told them that he intended to make a campaign in Syria and desired their help in calling together his army. After many attempts to dissuade Ortenit from such a fantastic enterprise, all was at last settled as he wished, even to the appointment of the governors and deputy governors in whose hands the country was to be left during his absence. The only person besides the king who carried his point was Elias, who insisted on his right to go to Syria or anywhere else he chose and expressed his firm determination not to lose sight of his nephew. As the counts were separating, Zacharias appeared. He was lord of Apulia and Sicily, a heathen, but a faithful comrade of the king. When he heard what they had settled, he at once announced his readiness to provide a ship to take the armament across the sea, for which offer the king thanked him warmly. On the advice of Elias, it was agreed to put off the expedition until spring, when the weather would be more favorable for a sea voyage. So the king had to smooth his impatience as best he might. He was very lonely, for he knew that no one quite sympathized with him. His mother indeed did her best to persuade him to give up the enterprise by setting its dangers plainly before him and telling him how ridiculous it was to be so much in love with a woman whom he had only seen in a vision and about whose character and disposition he knew nothing. He fretted against the idleness and uniformity of the life he was leading and determined to ride up into the mountains for something to do. When he went to take leave of his mother, she begged him not to go for fear of some accident happening to him, but finding that he was not to be dissuaded, she took a ring from her finger, saying, If you are determined to go, take this ring. The gold is thin, and a stone of little apparent value, but it possesses a magic power that could not be bought with a kingdom. Go where you like, in the wild mountains. But first of all, ride down the road to the left that leads over the heights to the lake, then sideways, under a wall of rock, to the valley. Look about till you find a spring gushing out of a rock, and close to it a great lime tree. There you will have a more wonderful experience than any you could imagine. Her voice trembled with nervous excitement, and her tearful eyes seemed to entreat him to ask her no questions. Dwarf Albridge. Ortnit rode away. He forbade any of his serving men to accompany him, saying that he wished to be alone. The cool fresh air blowing about his temples cheered him and chased away the fumes that troubled him. The sun began to sink as he entered the wood, where he had to dismount and lead his horse because of the low-growing branches of the trees. The night was so dark that he lost his way and did not succeed in getting out of the wood again till daybreak. When he gained the open, he rested a short time to let his horse graze in the meadow, and to eat his own breakfast. After that he set out again for the mountains, and at length reached the wall of rock his mother had mentioned. He rode along the foot of it, as she had told him, till he heard the gurgling of the spring, and on turning a corner saw the lime before him. It was an immense tree, and early as it was in the year, it was already covered with leaves and blossom. Ortenit found on looking around that it was in a wide meadow, 
on which grass, clover, and many colored flowers grew in rich abundance, while the number of birds that nested in the lime tree was quite unheard of. A curious feeling came over the king. It seemed as if he must have heard his bird's song of welcome in his childhood, and all at once he remembered a ditty his mother used to sing. He began to hum it softly. It was a song about all the little birds and the music each made after its kind. Sweet as a summer day and all in honor of Alberich, king of the wood. Alberich, king of the wood. Ortenit was sure that he had once heard more about him than that, but what it was he could not tell. Had he not played with a child of that name once? As he was puzzling over these confused memories of the past, he happened to glance at his mother's ring. The stone in it was shining like a fire and lighting up the face of a lovely child who lay asleep in the grass close by. Poor boy, said the royal hero compassionately. I wonder who brought you to this lonely place. How anxious your mother must be about you. I cannot leave you here to die of hunger or fall a defenseless prey to the wild beasts. He had already fastened his horse to a branch, and stooping down he lifted the boy in his arms to carry him away. But to his intense surprise he received such a blow on the chest that he not only let the child fall, but himself tumbled on his back. He had scarcely recovered his footing when he found the child holding him so tight that he had to exert all his strength not to be overthrown. It was a strange sight to see the tall king and the wonderful child wrestling furiously together. Flowers and grass were trodden on the foot, shrubs and low bushes broken and torn, when Ortnit at last flung his opponent on the ground and drew his sword to slay him. But angry as he was, he could not do it when the little thing gazed at him so entreatingly and begged in such a sweet soft voice that he would not murder him when he was defenseless, but would accept in exchange for the life he granted him a valuable suit of armor consisting of helmet, shield and coat of mail of wrought gold and silver, and last not least, the sword called Rosend, whose blade had been rendered strong and durable in dragon's blood. When Ortnit demanded a hostage for his opponent's good faith, the little creature told him that hostages were impossible to find in that wild mountain country. But Ortnit might trust his word, for he also was a king, and ruled over a far wider domain than Lombardy, though truly his realm lay beneath the earth instead of upon it, and his subjects were employed day and night in working in metals. Finding that no hostage was necessary, or indeed procurable, the hero allowed his prisoner to get up. But before the latter went to get the armor he had promised, he said that he would like to have the ring Ortnit was wearing, and that he scrupled the less to ask for it, as it did not appear to be of great value. I cannot give it to you, replied Ortnit, for it was a present from my dear mother, who would never forgive me if I parted with it. And you call yourself a hero, sneered the little creature. You who fear your mother's blows, tell me, what do you do when you are wounded in battle? Do you cry like a baby when you see the blood flow? If you were to hew me in pieces, replied the Lombard, painful as that would be, it would hurt me less than a tear or a sigh from my mother. Well, good squire of Danes, continued the other, it can at any rate do the ring no harm for me to look at it and touch it. I am in your power, am I not? Your sword is in your hand, and I 
and without a weapon. After a little hesitation, the king consented to let the boy draw the ring from his finger. But scarcely was this done when he vanished from before his eyes, suddenly and without warning. Hortonit felt bewildered. He heard the boy's voice, now at a distance and now near, making sarcastic remarks on the beating his mother would give him when he went home, and finally announcing that he would pelt him with a few pebbles to show him how well he could do it. Hortonit defended himself for some time against the terrible storm of sharp stones that rained upon him. But at last, seeing that neither his great strength nor his sword were of any avail, he turned to his horse and prepared to ride away. On perceiving this, the hobgloblin exclaimed, Wait a bit, friend good man. I am sorry to think the stripes your mother will give you. Listen to me. I have many important things to talk to you about. If you will give me your royal word of honor that you will not revenge yourself for the trick I played you, I will give you back your ring. Very well, answered Ornit. I promise on my honor. And if I go on to talk ill of your mother? No, cried the king, I will never forgive that. You may say what you like about me, but my mother is the purest and most perfect of women. I quite agree with you, said the little creature. You may listen to me without fearing that I shall slander her, for I am Alberich, king of the dwarves, and you and I are more nearly related than you think. I will tell you the truth. But first, take back your ring. I trust your word of honor. The moment Ortnit felt the ring in his hand, he slipped it back on his finger and immediately saw the boy standing before him. You must know, great king, pursued Albrich, that you have to thank me for your land and people, castles, towns and victories, and also for your marvelous strength. Your predecessor, whom you call father, married when he was an elderly man, the youthful sister of the prince of the wild Rusen. The marriage was childless. Husband and wife in vain prayed heaven for an heir. Your mother was the best and most virtuous woman in Lombardy, but she wore herself away with fretting about what would become of the country and herself when her husband died without an heir. She foresaw that the nation would be split into factions, that civil war would desolate the land, and that she herself might be chased from Lombardy, a homeless exile. I often heard her plaints when I entered her room and seen. The older the king grew, the more her anxiety increased. Then, well, you must know it sooner or later, I became her second husband. Monster, you lie, shouted Ortnit, drawing a dagger from his side, but he could not use it, for the smiling boy looked up at him so fearlessly. Your anger is bootless. You had better let me finish my story. Young as I look, I am five hundred years old. Small as I am and big and strong as you are, I am yet your father. I propose to the king that he should secretly get a divorce from his wife and let her marry me. He consented, but she would not. She refused. She spent days and months in weeping and only gave away at last when her husband insisted. She and I were married secretly by a priest. No one guessed what had happened. And when you were born, you were supposed to be the old king's son. I did not win my wife's heart, however, until her first husband was dead. After that, I used sometimes to bring her here. You and I played together among the flowers like two children. And I sang with the birds that wild song of theirs about the king of the wood, which your mother often sung to you again at Castle Garden. When you grew to be a man and a hero, I was often at your side, and seen. 
while the battle raged all round you, and on those occasions I have often turned aside the point of some murderous weapon that threatened your life. When you cross the wild ocean and strive to win the Moorish maiden for your wife, I will be there to help you, so long as you wear that ring on your finger. You have only to wish for me, and you will see me. Now, wait a few minutes. I am going to fetch the armor that no weapon can pierce, and the sword Rosen, which can cut through steel and iron, and even dragon scales. Ortonit felt as though in a dream. While he was still thinking over all that he had just heard, the sound of heavy steps and the clanking of armor startled him out of his reverie. Turning round, he saw Alberich, who, with the help of a sturdy dwarf, was bringing his promised gift. On the top of the silver helmet with gold and wrought was a priceless diamond. The whole suit of mail was of marvelously beautiful workmanship and sparkled with gems wherever gems should be. The sword was in a golden sheath, its handle was a shining carbuncle, and on the sharp steel blade were golden figures and the letters forming the king's name. Ortnit was amazed at the beauty of all he saw. He put on the armor, and it fitted him exactly. Then he picked his tiny father up in his strong arms and kissed him on his rosy mouth, and Alberich returned his embrace with much affection. As the king rode away, the last words he heard were, do not forget the importance of the ring. Never give it away. If you turn it on your finger, I will at once be with you. When Ortonit got home, he was received with joy by all his retainers, and his mother, who was watching for his arrival, signed to him to come to her. He instantly ran up the steps and whispered as he kissed her, I have come from Father Alberich. You know? she asked, hiding her face on his shoulder. I know, he answered, that I love and honor my dear mother. May came at last. The army assembled and marched south through Tuscany, Rome and Naples, whence they embarked for Sicily, Messina being the place fixed on for the general meeting of all the forces. Arrived there, they found faithful Zacharis ready with his sheep, in which he had stowed away not only enough provisions for the voyage, but also merchandise in case it should be wanted. Soon every man was on board, a favorable wind swelled the sails, and experienced seamen steered the ship through the wild sea. City of Sudders After they had journeyed a long time, the welcome cry of land was heard from the masthead, and soon afterwards those on deck had a distinct view of the shore and the wharfs of Tyre. But at this moment the skipper came up to the king and said, Sire, we are all lost, there is no wind to carry us past this place. They have sighted us already in the town and will soon send out their pirate ships to chase us. Come, nephew, said Elias, throw the cowardly dog overboard to drink brotherhood with the fishes. Have we not swords enough to defend ourselves from the moors? Sir, replied the skipper, the heathen would throw Greek fire on board. Neither sword nor shield can do against that. The ship will be burned, and all the men either burned therewith or drowned. No one knew what to advise so all stood silent about the king. Suddenly a voice was heard from the masthead. All arms below, bring up the merchandise, and let the sails be reefed, lest the enemy guess that we thought of flight. Hey day, it's Alberich, said Ortnit. How could I have forgotten him? He looked up and saw the king of the dwarves leaping rapidly down the mast to the deck. In another moment he was at his side. He forgot both the ring and me, said Alberich. But a father does not so soon forget his son. Now hasten and see that my commands are carried out. Much ashamed of himself, 
Orchnit gave the necessary orders. All weapons of offense were stowed away below, and the costly ware Zacharis had provided were spread temptingly on deck. Meanwhile, the dwarf climbed the mast again, and as soon as he was aloft, shouted to the moors, See here, we are peaceful merchants bringing wares from Italy. Give us free convoy into the harbor of Tyre. Elias stared up open-mouthed at the top of the mast. The flag was flying there as usual, and no one was to be seen. What voice was that he had heard? Is the devil on board? he asked, crossing himself. Or is it a good spirit? Whom did you speak to, nephew? Who called from the top mast, even now? A good spirit, replied Ortnit. A little dwarf who will help us out of our own difficulty. You shall see him with your own eyes. With these words he slipped his magic ring on his uncle's finger, and the latter was much astonished to see the small childish figure descending the mast, still more when Ortnit gave him a hasty sketch of all that had taken place. The Tyrian galleys had by this time come up with the ship. Their commander, who introduced himself as constable of the city, inquired whether the object of the strangers in coming to those seas was really to trade with them. Satisfied that they were what they appeared to be because of the number and splendor of their wares, he at last gave them leave to enter the harbor, and even to land if they desired to do so. In the course of that afternoon, the townsfolk bought many rich Italian stuffs at a very low price. In the evening, the two princes held counsel together as to what was now to be done. Elias advised that a sudden onslaught should be made on the castle, and that everybody there, young or old, should be put to the sword. Before Ortenit could answer, Alberich broke into the conversation by saying that such a conduct would not be fair, that no one who desired fame and glory would take his enemy unawares, but for fear any heralds sent to the infidels should be murdered by them, he undertook to bear the message of defiance himself. Alberich hastened to Montabue by unfrequented roads. Arrived there, he saw King Macharel standing on the ramparts, enjoying the cool of the evening air. Listen to me, Moorish king, cried the dwarf from the castle moat, and mark what I tell you. My master, King Ortnit, desires that you will give him your daughter to be his wife, and Queen of Lombardy. If you refuse your consent, he bids me declare war on you at once, and warn you that he will attack Tyre before daybreak tomorrow. After conquering it, he will come on to Montabur, punish you for your evil deeds, and marry your daughter. So, Goblin, cried Maharel angrily, you want to arrange a marriage, do you? You will find both your own head and your master's adorning the battlements of my castle before long, if you persist in your foolish scheme. But where are you? I cannot see you. Down below you, in the moat, was the answer. The king flung a heavy stone down upon the place where he supposed Alberich to be, but missed his mark. He called out his guards and made them search the whole neighborhood, but they returned at nightfall, baffled and disappointed. That evening, Ortnit made an onslaught on the city, and found it totally unprepared for any attack. However, the Tyrians soon got under arms and made a gallant defense. All in vain. Ortenit was victorious after a hard struggle in which many of his faithful followers were slain. When he returned from pursuing the Tyrians, Ortenit went to the place where his uncle had fought and found him lying on the ground surrounded by his people. Was he dead or only wounded? The king bent over him anxiously and loosed his helmet to see if he were yet alive. His heart had not quite ceased to beat. 
as Ortonit was raising him in his arms, he happened to touch him with Alberich's ring, and in a moment Elias was on his feet, whole and sound as though he had never been wounded. It was well for Ortonit that it was so, for in another instant he and his men were attacked by the trained bands of the city who had rallied once more. At length they also were beaten back with immense loss, and Tyre was really in his hands. Those of the citizens that were left saw felt it to the king of Lombardy, who then gave orders to attend to the wants of the wounded, both friends and foes. He allowed his followers a few days' rest before leading them against Montabur. Castle Montabur After much consideration, it was agreed between Elias and the king that Albrich was the best person to be standard-bearer during the assault, and the dwarf at once consented. The warriors were filled with amazement when they saw a warhorse preceding them with the royal banner apparently floating by its side. The invisible standard-bearer must be an angel, they said in awestruck tones. Nothing of importance happened during the march. All went well, for Albrich led the van. At last, Castle Montabur loomed in sight, a grim fortress perched on the top of a beetling crag. Mahorel had heard of their approach and was in readiness to receive them. He had strengthened the garrison very considerably and was confident of victory. At first it seemed as if his confidence were well founded, but at the very moment when the Saracens appeared to have success within their grasp, the tide of fortune turned. Albrich climbed the walls unseen and by a great exertion of his marvelous strength hurled one heavy catapult after another down from the walls into the moat below, while the men who had been working his engines of destruction were struck motionless with terror when they saw the unwieldy machines disappear as though shoved from their places by invisible hands. Ortney seized the right moment to push the advantage the dwarf had gained for him, and renewed the assault more vigorously than before. Sidrat the Beautiful Alberich now left the walls, and opening a side door made his way to a tower-like building that rose above the battlements. This was the temple where the Moors kept their idols, Mahomet and Apollo two enormous figures carved in stone. The king and her daughter, beautiful Sidrat, knelt before the idols, praying for protection from the invaders. Suddenly, Sidrat felt her hand grasped gently by an invisible hand. At first, she was frightened and then comforted, for she took it as a sign that her prayers were heard. But the unseen friend was Albrich, and not a hidden god. He whispered, Your gods are dust, I am a messenger from another world, and have come to save you and to teach you to worship the true God. The girl started to her feet in terror and hastened to her mother who was kneeling at a little distance. Meanwhile the dwarf flung the idols down and broke them in pieces, and the women were more alarmed than ever, for they felt convinced that an evil spirit was at work within the temple. Albrich went back to the princess and drew her to the barbican, whispering, See? That is the hero who desires to make you his wife and queen of his realm. Involuntarily she looked down and saw Ortnit fighting valorously, driving all before him and looking godlike in his grace and noble bearing. She could not turn away her eyes. He was even now advancing to attack her father. They exchanged one or two blows, the last of which split Maharel's shield. Ortnit raised his sword to strike again, but Sidrat uttered a loud cry of agony, and he refrained, 
for at the same moment he saw her standing on the barbican and knew that she was the maiden he had loved ever since he had seen her image in the magic castle on the sea. "'You see the royal hero?' asked the dwarf. But receiving no answer, he went on. "'Go down to the moat tomorrow morning at daybreak. Your father will allow you to do so if you tell him you are going to call upon your gods to return to the castle. But when you reach the moat, you will find the king waiting to speak with you.' Knowing that his advice would be followed, he left the princess. The battle had ceased to rage as furiously as before, and all were weary after their exertions. Ortnit's men retired to the riverside, where they were to encamp for the night, and the moors shut themselves within the fortress. All night long Ortnit dreamt of Sidrat, and then awoke and wondered whether she would come to the thrusting place. In the early morning, before the sun was up, the king mounted his horse and rode away alone to Montabur. He concealed himself beneath the spreading boughs of a tamarind tree, and waited and waited, doubting, fearing, would she come or would she not? At length, a postern door opened, and a white figure came out. Sidrat, he cried, and clasped her in his arms. To horse, delay not a moment, whispered the dwarf. Go down that way, past the waterfall. Ortnit at once obeyed, placed the maiden upon his horse and mounted himself. It was high time. He had scarcely got beyond arrow shot when a watchman on the tower recognized him by his helmet and sounded the alarm. Mahorel and his men-at-arms hurried down to the fight. Several times the fortune of the day changed sides, and when at length the battle was over, the besiegers were too much weakened in number to attempt to carry the castle by storm while the besieged were also in woeful plight, and their sorrow was increased by the loss of the princess. Ortnit began his retreat next morning. He found on his arrival at Tyre that his ship was in good order and ready for sea. So he gave orders for a speedy departure, and soon the gallant little army was speeding homewards with Princess Sidrat and much spoil. The Moorish girl proved a willing pupil when the Christian priests of Lombardy taught her their religion. So she was baptized and received the name of Libgard, Soon after that, she and Ortnit were married at Castle Garden, and the whole country rejoiced in the king's good fortune. The Toad's Eggs Ortnit and his wife were very happy together, and smiling peace rested on the land. Honors were showered upon the hero of so glorious a campaign, and even the imperial crown of Rome was placed upon his head. One day when Ortnit and his queen were seated in a banqueting hall, the warriors feasting around them, a stranger was announced who said that he had come from the east and was the bearer of rich presents to the royal pair. After a few minutes' delay, the ambassador was admitted. He was of gigantic height, wild of aspect, and said that his name was Vele. He announced that King Mahorel had sent him to make friends with Ortnit in his name and for his fair daughter's sake, that the king, in token of his reconciliation with his son-in-law, has sent him the finest jewels to be found in all Syria. Having thus spoken, Vele called his wife, Ruth. She at once appeared and was even taller and more hideous than himself. She dragged four great coffers into the hall, the contents of which she unpacked and displayed before the king and queen and all the court. The first contained dresses and steel wares of every sort and kind. The second was full of silver bracelets and ornaments of wonderful workmanship. The third was the same, except that the ornaments were of gold instead of silver. The fourth case was opened by the man himself, who lifted out of it, very carefully, 
two enormous eggs of strange form and color. These are the eggs of the Abrahamic magic toad, said the man. When they are hatched, which my wife will see to, you will find in each the wondrous toadstone that shines like the sun in a dark place or else a marvelous creature that will defend your coasts against every invader if you only feed it well. I am King Maharel's chief huntsman and understand how to bring up the beast and feed and teach its duties. So I pray you, appoint me and my wife a damp and quiet place amongst the mountains where we can watch over the eggs. Next year my royal master himself will cross the seas, make friends with you in person and see the miraculous result of our care with his own eyes. The queen's heart was filled with joy at these signs of her father's forgiveness, and throwing her arms round her husband's neck, she entreated that the proffered friendship should be accepted. The courtiers were quite of her opinion, but Zacharias, the faithful heathen, shook his head and spoke his distrust both loudly and clearly. No one listened to him. The king gave orders that the giants should be well treated and provided with food and all they needed in the mountains by the governor of the province in which the place most suitable for hatching the eggs were situated. High up in the mountains near Triant was a marshy bit of ground extending far within a cavern at the foot of a precipitous rock. Vele and his wife took up their abode there, and every day the governor sent them a supply of food. Hoots brooded over the eggs entirely. Before very long the shells cracked, and two little lindworms, dragons, crept out. They were pretty creatures, dainting in all their movements, and obedient to every command of the giant and his wife. The governor used sometimes to go and see them, and delighted in their agility and funny ways. The worst of it was that they had enormous appetites, and the more they ate, the faster they grew, and the more they wanted to eat. They were soon taller than their guardians when they raised themselves in the air and began to show themselves malicious and bad-tempered. The governor hesitated to supply their wants when he found that they needed more than two oxen a day. The wrath of the creatures at what they considered semi-starvation was so great that Vele and Roots grew frightened and took refuge in another cave. As soon as their guardians deserted them, the monsters crept into their hole and began to wander over the whole district, devouring men and cattle and whatever came in their way. The people deserted their old homes and fled to the mountain fastness. All in vain, the lindworms pursued them and continued to devour all who fell into their clutches. The governor sent out large detachments of horse and foot against them, but hardly a man returned to tell the tale of defeat and misery. And with every hearty meal the monsters grew larger and stronger. Everyone was in despair for it seemed as if the whole kingdom would be devastated. Ortnitz's fight with the lindworm One day the emperor Ortnitz went to his wife and asked her to help him to put on his armor, for he had to go out and fight a hard battle. She could hardly pronounce the words, with whom she trembled so. Well, Libgard, you must know that the dragons which are doing so much harm to the country are the toadstones your father sent me. I am the guardian of my people, and as they helped me when I went to Syria to win you, I must now help them in my turn by going out against these monsters to slay them, or myself be slain, I know not which. The empress wept and told her fears, but her husband comforted her by reminding her that he still had the good sword Rosen that could cut through steel and iron and even dragon scales. 
Should I not return, he continued, an avenger will come. If anyone brings you back this ring that you once gave me, you may know that he is my avenger, and give him your hand in marriage. He then kissed her and tore himself away. She gazed after him with tearful eyes as long as he was in sight, thinking sadly how many noble warriors had preceded him in his quest, and how none of them had ever returned to home or friends. Ortnit at length reached the rock where he expected to find the lindworms. Seeing them nowhere, he dismounted, blew his horn and loosed the faithful dog that he had taken with him to help him to hunt the monsters down. Suddenly a door in the rock opened, and the giant Vele came out, shouting to him to come on and calling him opprobrious names. But the king cut his great club in two with one stroke of his sword. The giant sprung back, and in a moment had unsheathed the sword sixty yards long, whirled it round his head and struck Ortnit so hard a blow upon the helmet that he fell senseless to the ground. "'Well hit, old Munkaf!' cried Roots, putting her head out at the door. "'Let me go to him now and wring his neck and throw his body into the dragon's den.' At this moment the setter which had disappeared in the wood began to bark furiously, and Roots rushed away to see what was the matter." Upon these Ortnitz started to his feet, and with a swing of his sword cut off one of the giant's legs. The monster howled with pain and defended himself resting against the rock, but his opponent immediately cut off his other leg. Hearing the noise, the giantess returned. Arming herself with an uprooted tree, she hit out at the hero with all her strength, but blinded by passion she miscalculated the distance and brought the tree down so hard on her husband's head that she split it open. Ortnit then slew the giantess, after which he rested a while from his labors, ate and drank some of the provisions he had brought with him, and let his steed graze at will on the short sweet grass of the upland meadow. Rested and refreshed, he once more set out on his quest. Riding through a wood, he came up with some charcoal burners and asked them where he should find the lindworms. They tried to persuade him to turn back, but in vain. Then they told him that the monsters had set out to travel west, that one of them, having a nest of young ones, had stayed somewhere in the road hidden in a cave, while the other had gone deeper into the mountains, perhaps even into another land. And heeding the warning he had just received, Ortnit rode away towards the west. When evening came, he rested for a short time, but as his food was nearly finished, and he wanted to reach an inhabited spot as soon as possible, he set out again, and rode all night long. Next day he reached the meadow, and there he saw little Albrich seated under a tree. The dwarf looked very sad, and when Ortnit drew rein beside him, said, My dear son, you are going to your death. Return to garden, for I have no power over the diabolical monsters you are seeking. I cannot help you. I need no help, replied the hero. Have I not the sword, Rosen? It will help me to conquer the powers of hell that are arrayed against my poor people. May you be successful, said the little creature and springing to the saddle he kissed his son. May you be successful, and to that end watch and slumber not. Remember that is the last advice I can give you. Now, give me back the ring you got from your mother. You shall have it again if you return to garden safe and sound. Scarcely had Ortnit returned the ring when he felt a kiss upon his lips, and the dwarf had disappeared. The hero rode on and faltering over hill and dale and through many a wild glen, at last he unexpectedly reached the very lime-tree under which he had had his first interview with Alberich. The birds were singing as before. All looked peaceful and still. Both Ortnit and his horse were worn out, 
So he dismounted, and letting his steed graze, laid himself at full length on the soft grass, his faithful dog at his side. He thought over his project, and was strongly tempted to return home to garden and sweet Liebgard. But he put the desire from him, for, he reasoned within himself, the prince and people are as one person, of which the people form the body and the prince the head. So the prince, to be worthy of his high calling, must, as far as in him lies, protect his people from all injury. And I have every right to trust to my strength, my sword and my good cause for victory. It seemed as though the birds in the linden tree had read his thoughts and were singing a paean of joy and encouragement over him and them. He watched them quietly, but soon fatigue gained the upper hand, his eyelids closed and he fell asleep. The dragon finds Ornit asleep. All at once the birds cease their song, the branches stop their soft waving to and fro, and the flowers bent their heads as though a breath of poison there were passing over them. Crawling through the thicket, trees and bushes, breaking with its weight, came the terrible lindworm, its jaws wide open, showing its long pointed teeth. The faithful dog, with a howl of mingled fear and anger, pulled at his master, hoping to wake him, but in vain, for Ortnit was as though in a charmed sleep. The dog then sprung upon the dragon, but could not touch it because of the way it slashed about with its tail. At this moment the horrible creature caught sight of Ortnit, flung itself upon it, carried him into the thicket, and then broke all his bones by dashing him again and again upon the ground. But though his bones were broken, his armor remained whole as at the first. Then, taking the dead body up in its powerful jaws, the lindworm bore it home to its nest in the noisome cave, where its young ones fell ravenously upon their favorite food and devoured as much as they could get at through the steel rings of the coat of mail. The dog which had followed the dragon home in hopes of saving his master watched all night by the cave, but finding himself powerless to help, set out early next morning on his way back to garden. Sidrat the Sorrowful, Libgard Meanwhile, Libgard and the old queen were very anxious. They hoped and feared alternately. On the fourth day, as they were sitting together, they heard something scratching at the door. Libgard opened it and saw the faithful dog, her husband's companion on his last journey. Instead of showing his usual joy at seeing her, the dog crept slowly in and lay down at the old queen's feet with a low, moaning whine. "'He is dead, murdered by the monsters,' cried the unhappy mother. These were the last words she ever spoke, for the next moment she sunk back dead in her chair. The shrieks of the young queen brought her women into the room, and soon the sad news was known to all. There was now no king in Lombardy, no one to keep order in the land. The great nobles fought and quarreled unceasingly, and the country was split into factions. At last, tired of this state of anarchy, it was agreed by the notables in council that the only thing that could save the kingdom was for Liebgard to choose a husband who had sufficient wisdom and power to make a good ruler. They went to the queen, each hoping in his secret heart that he would be chosen by her. But on hearing what was required of her, she answered with solemn earnestness that she would preserve her faith to Ornit unbroken, and that none was worthy to succeed him unless he could slay the lindworms and avenge his death. The nobles looked at each other in a shame-faced manner and hastened to leave the royal presence, but avarice and ambition soon regained the upper hand, and civil war seemed imminent. Liebgard, deprived of all means of support, 
for even the treasury had been despoiled by the nobles, was forced in company with a few women who were faithful to her to make her own livelihood by spinning. The margrave of Tuscany was much distressed when he heard of the straits to which the queen was reduced. He offered her an asylum in his country, but she said that at garden she had been happy with Ornit, and there she also wished to sorrow for him. Touched by her faithfulness, the prince sent her food and wine that she might no longer have to work for the necessaries of life. So she lived on, the Lombards trying to force her to seek refuge from the ills of life by a second marriage, but in vain. She bore all the miseries of her lot with quiet patience, for she strengthened herself with thoughts of her husband and of the avenger for whom she hoped. This hope, which sometimes rose like a star on the cloudy night of sorrow in which she lived, was one day to be fulfilled, but not for a long time. End of section 3